So this is a time for conversation, discussion, questions. It can be related to what were the theme of the talk. It doesn't have to be. You mentioned three things in there. Um, well, there's the desire. It seems like it was desire, and then there was um, something in avoidance, something around fear, and then avoidance was the last one. Those are three. Escape. Escape. Danger. danger. There was gratification, danger, gratification, and, es- danger, danger. and escape. Okay. Say that again. Gratification, mm-hmm. danger, and escape. And so... It seems like, I mean, unless I was missing something or, you know, confused there, um, we talked about the desire part quite a bit and then um, the, grati- excuse me, the gratification part, you know, what follows that and the, the danger or the, the escape, <laughs> or I'm, I'm sorry, I already forgot them again. The gratification, danger, danger and, and escape. escape. So the danger and escape, um, is that some sort of the opposite of, of, of the, the, the gratification? It's not the opposite. It's, it's, the, it's the following through of what, what happens when one follows desire. So after gratification mm-hmm. is, the, is the longing for more gratification. And that's dangerous. And that, and that just continues mm-hmm. to add more fuel to that fire. So the, the, the escape of that is to recognize the cycle and to stay centered with the pattern as it's arising so that when desire is present, one is aware of it rather than following it. When you're talking about the desire that arises while you're centered, what is one doing with the, the feeling of desire that is being experienced while observing it? You're not doing anything with it. You're just allowing it to be there without kind of uh, wanting to follow it or wanting to push it away. So if there's sometimes what happens, particularly with people who are long-term meditators, this is that we have an, a view or an opinion to, arises that having desire is bad. And so then when desire arises, then there's a, a, an engaging in a battle with the desire itself. And that is itself another desire. Okay? And so what's needed is just to watch desire as desire in the mind without actually pushing it away, without following it, without disbelieving it, just watching it. So the attention is still and centered, but one actually is not engaging in it. You're not doing anything with it. You're just letting it be there. And when you do that, like with fire, there's a little bit of heat in the fire, but if you're not putting more fuel on it, it doesn't flare up. It'll sort itself out in its own time. So that understanding these principles of relaxed, alert attention, observing something without getting lost in the content of it, are absolutely fundamental principles in meditation. And they're fundamental not just to the process of meditation, but to understanding how we get snared up and snagged up in suffering and how we can find a way out. And what was fascinating to me as my brain was wired up into the neurofeedback thing was to see how that was operating even when I was watching the DVD, you know, of animals and elephants and lions and just life. There was just scenarios of life. What I like... And what I get absorbed into and attached to, you know, the screen would collapse. And what I don't like, it would collapse. And when I was just still and centered and present, it was expanding. And if you do get caught up in it, how do you practice gradually getting back to a place and being able to observe? So when you get caught up, one of the telltale signs of getting caught up is suffering. And so what needs to happen then is, is that when you notice that there's suffering, either obsession with desire, obsession with getting rid of it, obsession with getting 
that that's all suffering, then what one needs to do is change one's frame of reference and come back into a place where attention is more settled and still and stable. So with people there are different frames of reference that they use, awareness of the body, awareness of the breath, the quality of pleasant or unpleasant of the thing that they're stuck in. When the mindfulness is established well, you can just see the whole thing as the, the mind formations, the mental formations of the, that one has gotten activated that one's attached to. And so the attention, when one recognizes suffering, then one brings one attention back into an anchoring place that allows one to reestablish the connection with what is centered and still, and then assesses what's happening. So for me, you know, what would happen when the screen would contract was I'd close my eyes and I would just inquire what's happening. And I could feel tightness or tension or I could feel desire or wanting or I feel some kind of a sadness. I would be aware of that. And then as I was aware of it, that's all I needed. It would relax. And as it relaxed, then the whole body would open, the field of the body would open and then the field of the screen would open. So every time I saw the screen collapse, I would close my eyes and go inward and check and see what was going on. So we need to effectively have life be that screen, where when we're feeling tight and tense and contracted, then that's a time to bring our attention inward and see what's going on. What am I hankering after? What am I pushing away? Where is their tightness? And as often as the case, it's not the thing that's the problem, it's the relationship with it. It's not the pain in our bodies or the longing for something. It's the way that we're relating to what's arising, which is where the real tightness is. Can you expand a little bit more on gratifying? How, how do we, or should we, I'm not quite sure from your viewpoint, should we be gratifying our desires, and is there a proper way to do it where there's, you know, not, not the... Obsession or the overemphasis on the desire. So, in this whole kind of refrain, gratification, danger, and escape, mm-hmm. there's the recognition that any time that we're gratifying our desires without awareness, then we're setting ourselves up for the next thing, which is danger. Which is, is that we're wiring our system to feel that the only time that we can be happy is when we have our desires gratified. And no matter how resourced you are, emotionally, socially, financially, There's a limit to what you can do that. And so inevitably, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment and failure when our sense of happiness is located outside of our own direct experience. So it's not that we shouldn't satisfy our desires, but that if we don't satisfy our desires with an awareness of how it fits into the bigger picture, we're setting ourselves up for something else which is the inevitable outcome, and the inevitable outcome is disappointment and a sense of grief and a sense of loss when it changes. And it absolutely has got to change. And that goes back to Kevin's talk, I'm trying to put all this back together, last week on impermanence. Is that the word you used? What, can, I ask, can I go there? What were the three, again, the three points that you talked about? And the three characteristics conditioned reality, which is impermanence, and the suffering, and the non-self. There's no inherent thingness in anything. There's no inherent self in it. So, 
Our society is kind of built on the premise that if you have what you want and you get rid of what you don't want, that that's the good thing. That that's a sign of happiness, of success, of being accomplished as a human being. And so the Buddhists are saying, check it out. Is that actually the case? Does that actually bring fulfillment? Does that actually bring a sense of ease and well-being? You know, is what we're doing actually an indication of a sense of internal peace? So there's not a requirement that you take on a belief. It's a requirement that you investigate or an, an invitation to investigate to see whether this pervasive cultural belief actually comes up with the goods that it promises. So what we have to be careful with when we're talking about desire is is that desire is a kind of big, broad word, and it can also include things like aspiration, the longing to be free from suffering, the interest to cultivate uh, compassion. And so when we're talking about desire, what we're talking about is the specific desire for sense pleasure. We're talking about the desire for uh, to increase the sense of self in the in that to to get rid of the sense of of self to not be or not have a sense of self and the desire that one's view or that one's opinion is 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 uh, agreed by others or appreciated these kind of desires that were was the kind of desire that we're looking at. And so it's not that all desires are categorically things that we need to not engage in because you can't you can't live if you're not actually doing that. But what's what's helpful is is then to begin to start waking up to the way desire operates through our lives and when does it bring us a sense of ease and well-being and when does it perpetuate the sense of lack of ease and well-being and the fact that the only time we will be nourished is when we continue to follow more desire. So there's a lovely kind of metaphor that Ajahn Shah used to use, which is that, you know, when you buy a banana, you know, you don't eat the peel. But why did you buy the peel if you don't eat the peel? Well, because the banana comes with the peel. You know, it just comes. They come together. And the same is true in meditation practice. There's a desire that usually is the thing that starts us practicing. But you need that desire initially, like you need the peel initially in order to protect the banana. And then it comes time where it's time to eat the banana, you can throw away the peel. But if you throw away the peel before, you, before you're ready to eat the banana, the banana just rots. You know. So there's a way in which we desire to practice in order to have a sense of stillness or to have some sense of inner peace. And eventually we have to wake up and reflect on that desire itself. Because that desire, without having any reflection on it, is just another desire. But initially, it's the thing that brings us here. You know, it's the thing that actually helps us sit on the cushion. It's the thing that takes us on retreats. It's the thing that allows us to make effort until we have the capacity and the discernment to be able to reflect on what elements of that are wholesome and what elements of that are not wholesome and to let the not wholesome things fall away. I have a banana story. <laughs> um, I didn't meet everyone. I was in the restroom. My name's Dana. I got to uh, meet sister prior to Thanksgiving last year from my friend Paul, and um, so on. And in watching these things now, I like egg sandwiches at McDonald's. But today, sometimes I don't always fall on that comfort food. 
you know, have the the little craving and the little stomach thing going on, and I'll watch it. And I'll and I'll think to myself, well, that's that's a natural reaction. I'm, you know, there's some hunger things going on, and I'll smell, and I'll, I'll pause, and I'll just watch that. And on good days, I drive by and I I watch that, and that and that that thing that I used to react on like that as an absolute fact that I needed to have food right now. I watch it for a little while, and on on good days, I can watch it and it'll go away, and maybe I'll have a banana later instead of you know going to that comfort food. And it, you know, it's only six or eight months. I mean, I'm still comfort food. It's not perfect. I I fall into when the is going on and I'm not working that program of action you know it's easy to eat carrot cake and but you know today I get to watch that so thank you it's lovely Sherry thank you Dana because that's where you know this stuff comes alive is in our daily life with the kinds of stuff that we're working with I mean the teachings can sound abstract but they're actually about McDonald's egg sandwiches <laughs> coffee <laughs> cuddles <laughs> are there any more things to share I have something kind of similar to what Dana was saying and maybe kind of similar to what you were saying earlier about the, the uh, neurofeedback so I try to meditate when I run I try, many of you have heard this some of these things before and uh, this past Wednesday I was running up this long steep hill um, just with the felt sensation of the feet hitting the ground and it's a long steep hill so I start going oh I'm tired and I go oh okay that's just big thoughts and so I go back to the feet and so I speed up noticeably and I let go of the tiredness thought and then later I noticed like even a more subtler um, trying to locate myself not with the feet but like where am I on this trail and the same amount of slowing down happened just because of this, you know, slight mental activity of, I guess in that sense I'm kind of, you know, bringing the Paul back into the situation and where's Paul on this, on this trail. And as soon as I let that go, I sped up again. But what was amazing, what was interesting to me was that, that they had the same effect. I mean, even one was like, oh, what was me? And the other one was just like trying to, you know, locate myself, which seemed, you know, innocent enough. But even that, so it slowed me down the same amount. It's like the hamburger, you just kind of work with that and let it go and go back. So when we have things like that, that are feedback mechanisms for it, it's really, really opportune for practice. Mm-hmm. Because when we, you know, when you've got the sense of, you know, speed or slowing down or being able to negotiate hunger or, you know, some tangible sign that gives us a, a sense of, of, of when we're practicing correctly... And it helps us get a handle on some of these things that otherwise sometimes can feel subtle. Darcy was with us, and she uh, she stepped wrong, and her knee was her knee was hurting, and she was describing how what was happening in her mind was very similar to a story that I'd shared before, which is is that you know somebody in a meditation retreat had pain in his knee, and and and. Instead of just be present with the pain in his knee, he started this whole big, huge proliferation festival about designing a wheelchair, especially for meditators. 
and and she was aware while she was walking of what had happened. There was a little a little uncomfortable sensation, and then the mind immediately started thinking about crutches or how do you get back or how do you do this whole. But she was practicing with it, so she could watch that movement, saw herself doing it, and then came back just to the present moment. So. When we have these signs of things that take our attention out and turn into f- like this this kind of festival, the, you know, this something that's got a lot of mental energy in it, then what's helpful is to recognize that and then just come back to something much simpler, just the sensation or just the feeling of unpleasant or the fear. Oh no, there's an unpleasant sensation and there's fear because I don't know what that means. Just that movement is where the practice is. That's it. It's right there. So it's very much about being present with what's happening and then kind of feeling out, how are you relating to that? And when there's this kind of tightening back, then to find some sense of embracing. And when there's a grabbing, then there's a sense of just steadiness. That's the practice. So the practice itself isn't complicated. It's just that because it has so many different myriads of applications, we tend to get stuck into different manifestations of things without realizing that it's it's just the same thing again and again and again. What's happening right now? How am I relating to it? What's happening right now? How am I relating to it? Am I tight? Am I grasping? Where is that still place back here where it's it's connected, it's grounded, it's centered? Is it part of it saying it's all okay? It's, I think for me the suffering comes when I judge it as mm-hmm. bad or good or, um, you know, what's wrong with me that I have this you know, pain in my knee. Um, that's... So each of us have got a myriad of kind of habit patterns, and each of us can develop a toolkit in how we respond to our own habit patterns. And our own individual toolkit is going to look different from somebody else's toolkit. So many of us suffer from judgment in terms of, you know, we've got really strong opinions about what we should and shouldn't be experiencing and, and all the rest of that. But how we relate to that judgment, for each of us, it's going to be slightly different. So what's in your toolkit might look different than what's in my toolkit. Sometimes what helps me is if I exaggerate it. So if I'm judging something, if I make it five times worse, like really go to town, like like no holds bar, and then I can see how ridiculous it is. Okay? Like especially if I'm getting on my own case then I can magnify that, make it extreme, and then listen to what that sounds like, and it's absurd. And when I can see it in the extreme, it makes it easier for me to see what I'm dealing with. And then it's much easier to let it go. That can also be the case for physical tightness and pain, or anger, or all of the things that we find difficult. If we notch it up one or two notches and bring our attention and our physical experience of how we're experiencing that, like anger... Make it worse. And then feel how it burns. I mean, how miserable it actually is. From that one or two notches more intense, you're, you really get it. How uncomfortable this is. From that place, it's a lot easier to step it down several notches. 
But if we do it just from the place of will, anger is bad, I shouldn't be feeling anger, I should let go of anger, it's very difficult to have any kind of capacity to, to renegotiate a different relationship with it. So that is a useful toolkit, but it can, with anything, we actually need to have some sense of capacity. So if you're about to lose it with anger, you don't want to increase it. You know, if you're about to slam somebody or kick somebody or throw something at somebody, then that's not the time to increase it. (laughs) So everything is contextual in that way. You know, it very much depends on what we're up to. And so part of what's needed is the ability to, to negotiate, you know, all of that. Where am I actually up to right now? You know, in terms of what kind of tools you use. So for some, it certainly might be helpful just to have this kind of sense of, you know, it's all okay. You know, as a kind of, whatever judgment is arising as a kind of basic statement, well, it's actually all okay. It's all okay to feel it. All welcome. Everything belongs here. There's nothing that is not allowed. Well, shall we pass out the chanting and close with the sharing of blessings? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.